right, so uh, as we continue kind of introducing the idea of systematics, uh, last week we talked about why we would study systematics, because we want to wonder at God, we want to worship God, and we want to grow in our love of God and neighbor. Uh, this morning we're going to look at what systematic theology is. And so, I, I don't know who's like, hopefully most of you, because I feel like this is normal and I'm not weird here, but I just hate piles. Like, I have piles. If you go in my office, my desk looks like a pile of papers, pile of books, pile, Vaughn's not here, pile of receipts, um, and, you know, I don't like them, but I have them. Uh, the desktop screen on my computer has, like, five icons, and it kills me that there's, like, five files, because files don't belong on a desktop. Files belong in folders within subfolders within sub-subfolders within, you know, specific partitions of a hard drive. Um, and, and like, I, I want things to be where they belong. I want them to be organized. I want them to be logical. Um, so, like, I tend to, when I do a big teaching series, like uh, when we did Humanity in Youth Group last year, even this, uh, Systematics, I usually make just, like, a 200-page Word document with all of my notes and thoughts so I can come back and be like, oh, when we study the doctrine of God, make sure I look into... Whoever, John Frame, page 76, he has this quote, and it's really helpful. I'm like, I can't just have 200 pages of loose notes, you know, 300 footnotes or something. Like, I need headings and subheadings so you can collapse them, so you can move them around, so you can grab a section and just chuck it out the window because, you know, that's what I do with most of my stuff. Like, maybe some people can deal with that kind of chaos. I cannot, which is why I, you know, have an anxiety attack every time I step into my garage. Like, I, I want to be able to find what I need quickly and know where it is and why it's there. And uh, in systematic theology, we're, we're basically just organized. Well, I said last week, theologies are words about God. Uh, so we're just organizing them, right? We're, we're organizing our words about God so that we can know where this information goes, and we can find it. We can do it. We, we, we classify it. We put it into a system, into a taxonomy. <clears throat> um, I know like some people don't like the idea of systematic theology. We're like, well, God gave us a story. He didn't give us a systematic theology textbook. We don't have an encyclopedia. But, I mean, the opposite of having systematic theology is having chaotic the theology. It's unorganized. Like, everybody's doing it. It's just like, are we going to put things in categories where they belong, or are we just going to have piles of thoughts about God and Bible verses and musings and speculations that are just, you know, heaped up on the floor of our minds that are inaccessible and unusable? Um, I love the way that Jen Wilkin and J.T. English, they just wrote a new book on theology. Um, and they say, after God created everything, then he commanded Adam to name everything, to classify it, to give it taxonomy. And they write, Adam simply brings organizing language to what already exists. In doing so, he's bearing the image of an orderly God. He's fulfilling the command God has given him to take dominion. All of these organizational efforts don't add to what is being organized. They simply make those items accessible and useful. In a small way, as you do theology, you're bringing order as you were created to do. So as we all watch our you know, 
organization shows on Netflix, which is apparently a thing, you know. That's us reflecting the image of God, who tells Adam, hey, organize this. Make it useful. Make it helpful. Uh, this is what Jesus did in Luke 24 when he's walking down the road to Emmaus, and he says, hey, let me tell you everything in the Old Testament, and I'll put it in this category of it's about me, right? He doesn't put new ideas into the Old Testament. He just says, here's what's there. Let's organize it and put it over here in things pointing to, to me, to Jesus. And <clears throat> so in systematic theology, we're just organizing our words about God. And so this morning, I don't so much want to give you a definition of what theology is, but a description of what it looks like. And Lord willing, if I can keep my you know, thoughts concise, we'll look at six attributes of systematic theology. So here's where I want to go. Theology is biblical, logical, Christological, helpful, historical, and doxological. Uh, that, that's hopefully where we're running. You know, there's a chance we'll get about right here and then have to, you know, go into worship. But we'll see what happens. Uh, so to start, theology is biblical, right? If we want to understand who God is and what, what he's like, then we're going to find it from the Bible. Uh, the Bible is the roadmap God gives us to, to live godly lives, to build healthy churches. So theology and Bible aren't like in competition to one another. Oh, this is theology. It's not No, they, they work together. They're, they're the same thing. Um, and so theology, right, it sees Scripture as the source of knowledge. This is where we get our ideas about God. The, the Bible's inspired by God. The, the Bible is the norm by which we test our ideas about God. I'll come back to that in just a second. Um, but it goes a step farther than just piling up our biblical texts. It starts, theology then takes that pile and thinks about it. It organizes it. It analyzes it. It draws conclusions, right? So in English class, we had to do spelling and vocab tests right, where you get a word and you have to spell it, which was always the hard part for me. It still is the hard part for me. Um, like I said, I have no idea how to spell Heimlich or Maneuver for the bulletin. Um, <laughs> maneuver is even worse because that feels like it should be logical, but it's not. Um, but then you have to define the word. And you would say uh, the Heimlich Maneuver is a maneuver where you grab somebody and squeeze them until they spit food out or whatever. And my mom would say, no. What? That, that's right. You can't use maneuver in the definition of maneuver, right? You can't use the word in the definition. You don't actually know what that means unless you can explain it in your own words. That's kind of what theology is doing with the Bible. Hey, can you explain what this means in your own words without just quoting verses? It's not in addition or in opposition to the Bible. It's just going deeper into scripture. Yeah. So is that, is that what happens when we talk about the Trinity? I mean, people point out like the word Trinity is not in the Bible. Yeah. I'll get there in just a minute, but absolutely that's what I'm saying. Um, right. So some people would say with the Trinity, right, we're adding to scripture, like because Trinity's not in the Bible. But the Westminster Confession of Faith, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deal with this a lot. I think this is the biggest objection to theology as it adds to Scripture, it goes beyond Scripture. Here's the Westminster Confession of Faith. It says, the whole counsel of God, this is on Scripture, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, 
man's salvation, faith and life, is either expressly set down in Scripture or, by good and necessary consequence, may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. So if you're a 19th century English Baptist, which I'm assuming most of us are not, um, because it's not the 19th century, you know, you couldn't find a Bible verse that says, God is one essence in three persons. It's called the Trinity. And therefore, you would say believing in the triune God is not necessary to be a Christian, which is not even remotely close to being true. But they say only the things explicitly written in Scripture are binding and not things that are good and necessary consequences that may be deduced from Scripture. Um, the confession goes on to say, uh, just this bold part, there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and the government of the church common to human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the world which are always to be observed. So it's not just scripture and deduction, but some things come from nature. I was going to underline it, this John. Which means, so like in worship, What's the most controversial thing that ever happens in a worship service? Where the thermostat is set, right? (laughs) Anywhere in the Bible that tells you what temperature it should be in the sanctuary? No. Is that an important aspect of worship? Absolutely. And so we figure that out by the light of nature, you know, what temperature feels good, and by Christian prudence, right? I've been cold about four times in my life. Um, and so it's a little bit chilly in the sanctuary because I have control of it. But Christian prudence says, no, selfishness is not a virtue. Love is. So when everybody else, you know, would love to live in Arizona instead of Michigan. Let's just go to the next slide. Um, so theology is logical, right? This is what we're getting at from the Bible. The Bible leads to logic. It doesn't just ask, you know, what's in the Bible, but why is it there? How does this work? Um, And and in theology, we're expecting logical explanations because God is a rational, reasonable God. God God gave us rules for the way that we think. And so even though we can't know God fully, right, he's infinite, we're finite, a finite mind can never grasp the infinite, we can (laughs) truly know God And we're helped in that knowledge by reason, by logic, by philosophy, whatever word you want to put there. Um, I put up here, you know, reason helps us understand God. Because, like, we we can't logic our way to knowing God, right? We need God's special revelation of himself, the Bible, to get to know God. But once we're there, we can look at the path we came by and be like, oh, that actually makes a ton of sense. Um, it's reasonable to me how I got here. And so so God is orderly, he's logical, and even though there's mystery involved in the logic, right? The Trinity again. How can God be three persons with one nature? I don't understand that by logic, but it's reasonable then to say that when we talk about Christ who has one person but two natures, you know, we flip the three to the one and the one to the two. 
then those words are going to mean the same thing. We're not, what, is it Alice in Wonderland where it's like words have no meaning, we just make them mean whatever we want? That, that's not how theology works. So, so the way that, you know, biblical and logical work together is, let's say you're trying to build a doctrine of creation. So you take all the Bible verses about God creating. You're in Genesis 1 and 2. You're in the Psalms. You're in the end of Job. Uh, you even get some stuff like Hebrews 11. God made everything visible out of things unseen. You pile those up, and you get a doctrine of God created. Great, that's biblical. But then you start thinking, because there's no verse in the Bible that says God made everything out of nothing. That's not explicit in the text. But you think and say, what did God make things out of? If there's two categories, right? You have God and you have other things. Creation. God is eternal. God makes non-eternal creation. Then what did God use? What was already there before creation existed? Um. You know, some people would say the primordial sludge. Without, you know, God was hovering over the waters, Genesis 1 says. And you're like, hang on, but is that a God thing or is that an other thing? Is it eternal? Because if it's eternal, then it's with God. So that doesn't work. So it must mean that, that God stands alone in eternity and he creates everything else, which means the, 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 the building blocks of creation, the things that God used to create, has to be Nothing. God created out of nothing. And you're like, okay, I don't have a Bible verse that says that. The closest thing I have is Hebrews 11, 4, that says, by faith we know that God made everything that is seen out of things that are unseen, but maybe God had invisible building blocks. I don't know. Um, and so you say, okay, I think the doctrine of creation isn't just God created, but God created out of nothing. Glory. And then I say, but hang on. My logic is not the final answer. It's not the final authority in theology. So I go back and I read Genesis 1 again. Hey, can I read this in a way that says that God made everything out of nothing? Absolutely I can. Maybe that's why he speaks and he doesn't build. Um, can, I, can I read the end of Job? Were you there when I created everything? Yeah, that, that works. Can I read the Psalms that way? Yes, absolutely. Can I read Hebrews that way? I absolutely can. And so we use logic to farther our understanding of Scripture. So we have theology is biblical, it's logical, and it's also Christological, meaning that theology is going to point us to Christ. Um, there are a lot of ways to get lost in the weeds here and then have debates for decades on end, which is what, you know, Christians on the internet have been doing for the last 20 years. Um, I think the most simple way to say it is this. So Hebrews, not Hebrews, Ephesians 1.10 talks about God who says, and it's regarding his plan of the fullness of the times to bring all things together in Christ. Things in heaven and things on the earth, right? So God's plan from day one is to bring all things together in Christ. Christ is the focus, he's the endpoint. he's the capstone of God's plan for everything. That's right. So it makes sense then, when God creates on day one, that he's creating with a view to wrapping things up in Christ. Right. So when you're talking about creation, 
in Genesis 1, the first thing created is the light. It's the sun, right? Genesis goes in patterns to three. It gives you the things and then the filling, right? It gives you the, the light, the, and the, the, then you have the waters in the sky, then you have the earth. Four, five, six is the stars and the moon, the things in the sky, then the things in the water and then the air, and then the things on the earth. It kind of goes the, 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 the arena and then the filling of them. And so the very first thing you have is the sun. Which is interesting, because when you go then to the second to last chapter of Scripture, and you see the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation 21.3, you see there is no sun. Hang on. The very first thing that was created is no longer in existence. Why don't we have a sun? The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light. And in place of the sun, its lamp is the lamb. It's Jesus himself. So we don't need the sun because we have, let me rephrase this, we don't need the S-U-N sun because we have the sun of God in its place shining. The sun in the sky points us to the sun of God and we're supposed to read Genesis 1 expecting, okay, this is pointing us to something better. It's pointing us to Christ. Or Genesis 2, we have the institution of marriage, which then Paul says, the reason we have marriage is to give us an example, an illustration of Christ's love to the church. And so as, as we read theology, we should expect it to point us to Christ. Um, everything is maybe, some stuff's explicitly an error, like I don't know how you can miss this. Some stuff's a little bit more implied, or it's like a signpost, it's hidden. But it's all pointing us to Christ. I mean, even things like, it's fall. Why, why would God create an earth with seasons where every year we get this picture of things living, dying, if you're in Michigan, being buried by the snow, and then coming back to life? Why do we get that reminder every year, year after year? Maybe God wants to bake into creation this, this, this most foundational truth of death leading to life, life coming out of the grave, so that we have an understanding, so that we have illustration. It's not just random, you know, when we're teaching the threes and five-year-olds, like, hey, think of season. No, God put it there. I mean, some people would go so far as to say, why are grapes red? I get there's black grapes, there's green grapes, whatever. Why are grapes red? Because grapes make wine, and wine is the foundation of celebrations in the Old Testament and in the New. And, and then wine is used to point to Christ's blood. So God made grapes and wine the same color as blood. So we could remember that all of our feasting and celebrations are founded upon the blood of Christ. And yet, I don't know if that's true, but it makes sense. It seems like that's the way God tends to work. is he points everything to Christ. Um, I'm not going to read that. Questions so far? I feel like I just dumped a lot on you. All right, let me, let me, let me go ahead and read this. We have time. Uh, it says, From the beginning, God intended the Son to be at the very heart of his dealings with creation. As God the Son incarnate, Jesus Christ is the one mediator between God and man. That is not to say that, that God did not or could not relate to creation prior to the coming of Jesus, yet with a note of finality and alluding to the long period of preparation and anticipation, the author of Hebrews wrote, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. 
But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. That's Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. From that time, the final word was spoken. There's no going back as if the son had not come and he did not embody the fullness of God's revelation and purpose. He is the way we know God and how God relates to all things. Theology is possible because of him. Through him, we're enabled to see all that has come before him in light of its proper destination and all things that have come after him in light of his life, work, and figure. And so theology is going to be Christological. It all points us to Jesus. All right, so let's move from the abstract to a little bit more tangible. Theology is also helpful. Um, so like reading the Bible is good. Memorizing the Bible is good. Um, but in some cases, it doesn't go far enough. I guess I'm just doing Genesis 1 today. I, I'm, I'm in creation. That's where we're at. So, for example, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That's a great verse. That's a really good verse on humanity, on man being created in God's image. We can read that every day. We can memorize it. We can put it as our life verse if you want to do that. God created man in his own image. We're, we're confident of that from Genesis 1.27. But what does that mean? What does it mean to be in the image of God? Right? Bible reading without this theological meditation may not quite go far enough. Right? Because if you just say, God created us in his image. Okay, you can't define a word using that word again. Right? What does it actually mean? Let's pile up some more verses here and then analyze them. Think logically, think Christologically. Because like, okay, well, in Genesis 1, we're in the image of God. What about in Genesis 3, after the fall? Did sin take away the image of God? Because that's a relevant conversation. No, it didn't. Um, Noah helps us out there. Um, or what about this? God doesn't have a body. He's invisible. He is unseen. So how can we image God who is unseen? That's a really good question. Or, you know, Christological. We, we read that Jesus is the image of God. He tells his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So is Jesus the image of God in the same way that we're the image of God? These are, these are questions you can't just read and recite Bible verses and get an answer to. You have to think about them logically um, and make, what's a, what's a phrase here from, Westminster, good and necessary consequences and deductions to figure out the answer to these things. So theology is really helpful in, um, in, in helping us read the Bible. Um, this is Bobby Jameson from that Sound Doctrine book I recommended last week. Like He says, if you're doing theology, it's going to help you read the Bible all over the place. Um, by, by giving us a big, it gives us a map. We can see the big picture so we're not lost in the weeds, right? So a few weeks ago, thinking I would be a good dad, I took my kids to play, but then I realized this is one of the highest populations of predatory animals in the state. And you're like, huh, maybe I'm not such a good dad anymore. Like, there are more dangerous predators here than anywhere else in the, in the state of Michigan. And you're like, yeah, that's not a good move. But why not? Like, it's fun to let your kids run free and play at the zoo. And so if you know 
you know, the zoo up front, then it makes sense of the predatory animals on the back end. If you can see the big picture, then you can understand what you're reading. And so theology gives us a big picture view of God's works and his ways. Um, theology kind of serves as a mind sweeper of unbiblical ideas, right? So we all have ideas when we come to the Bible. No one comes absolutely neutral to Scripture. And we just start assuming that our ideas are right without ever checking them. And so when we have theology, it helps us to not read certain passages of Scripture in unbiblical ways. It, it, it adjusts our thinking by saying, hey, this, this and this are inconsistent here. So uh, just recently... Uh, I was corrected about, okay, when your child is sinning, the parent's job, first and foremost, is to bring them to repentance. How does somebody bring somebody else to repentance? And I'm like, well, I think we have a ton of vengeance all about that. Like, isn't vengeance designed to bring people to repentance? And, and, and the guy I was talking to, he says, in Scripture... In the New Testament, there are two explicit things that God does to bring people to repentance. What are they? Anybody know the two, two explicit things God does to bring people to repentance in the New Testament? The, yeah, God's kindness. Uh, that's going to be Romans 2.4. So the goodness or kindness. Anybody know the second one? It's in 2 Peter 3.9. Suffering or... Yeah, it's his patience. So Dan, when you're thinking about parenting and trying to bring your sinning kids to repentance, if you think theologically about repentance and not just citing verses from judges or, you know, here's the battle of AI and, oh, one thing went wrong so we're going to kill everyone, I'm like, yes, that, that seems like my style of parenting. How would, how would a New Testament theology inform that? What should your actions towards your sinning kids be? Well, I guess it should be informed by kindness and patience, right? Does that mean God doesn't have authority? No, of course not. But let's make sure we're reading in a fully theological way so that when we read individual verses, it, it um, isn't morphed by our own views and opinions, right? Um, thirdly, it maps God's story onto our lives. So a lot of times, you know, you're reading the Battle of AI, and, and where's that? That would be Joshua. Or you're reading whatever, and you're like, okay, I have no idea how the stuff that happened to them back then has to do with us now. Um, if you've ever been to Training in the Word, you've probably seen something that looks like the Bible's here, we're over here, and we have to kind of go the long way home to get to how the Bible applies to us today. And this corner up here has a cross in it. It says theological reflection, figuring out what this Old Testament or this old passage about whoever, the, the Jebusites, if we think about it theologically, then we can apply it to our lives. So it helps us to apply scripture. And finally, it guards against false teaching, right? Um, in 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4, we, we read that false teachers gain a hearing by telling us the things we want to hear, right? Our unbiblical ideas. 
But like everybody knows how you seek out a counterfeit. It's by studying the original. So if, if we want to guard against false teaching, we, we need to know what's true. So if, if you let it, theology is going to help you not just have you know, more knowledge about things, but it's going to impact the way you read the Bible and apply the Bible to your life. Number five, uh, theology is historical, right? It's based on scripture, but it's in conversation with, with the history of the church, with a great tradition. Um, and so I, I just said on the last slide, I should have put these opposite order, right? Everybody comes to the Bible with, with ideas, with thoughts that they already have in their mind about what things mean. There's no, what, non-mediated readings, right? So, so you read, um, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. No one's like, God, what does that mean? Like, I have no idea what this idea of God is or who he is or what he's like. We all have ideas, maybe from our, our parents, maybe from other Bible teachers, maybe just from our own psychological, you know, desires of who the higher being is, of what God is like. And, and so, like, we're, we're going to have historical influence. The question is, is it good and helpful, or is it harmful to our theology? And, I mean, this... This sounds like, oh man, that's a bad thing. I need to clear my mind and come as a blank slate to scripture. But like, God sets it up. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, parents, teach your children about me and my ways. Psalm 78, let us proclaim God. We read this yesterday, right? Proclaim the works from one generation to another. Like God wants us to have historically mediated thoughts about him. Um, and so we want to involve history and learn from people that have gone before us. Um, I mean, most of the theological battles have already been fought. Um, we don't have to reinvent the wheel, right? How, how arrogant is it to say, you know, the church has been around for 2,000 years. I'm glad we finally got to me because I get it, right? I, I understand this. Um, and have, have people in the past gotten things wrong? Yeah, because they're human like you but we correct one another's blind spots because they're thinking about things that are just assumed by us and vice versa. Um, and so when I say historical, like, yeah, great, like recent, but also like go back. We have a long history of, of Christian tradition. Um, in my office, we have this little, like it's a gift shop novelty book. I'm, I'm guessing I bought it. I don't know where it came from, but it's a dinosaur on the front and it's called All My Friends Are Dead. Um, and it's, it's when Ella started reading and, you know, wanting to have books and picking her books, Chris is like, that's in your office. Cause like, she is not going to grow up with the same sense of humor as you, um, for obvious reasons. But like in doing theology, I resonate with that. Like all my friends are dead, right? Because if you want to study about the doctrine of Christ, like those battles were fought, and the early church fathers, like Augustine's a guy to go to in the, in the 300s. They were, they were pretty much fought and decided, and you can't improve upon Nicaea. If you want to figure out the doctrine of the Trinity, like we, we, we fought those battles leading up to Chalcedon and to um, what is it, the Athanasian, Athanasian Creed. Um, you know, if we want to figure out how things are, like, 
when talking about the Bible, I quoted the Westminster Confession of Faith at 1624 because, 1647, sorry, because like 400 years ago, they, they fought the battle over what it means to be biblical. And so we're fighting that battle again right now, but it's like, why are we reinventing the wheel? Let's just have a, a lick of humility and go and, and read the people that have already done this. And for, for some reason right now, um, his, history, tradition, it's gotten a bad rap. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. Catholics believe in history. They take the tradition, not Protestants. Like, for me, it's just me and my Bible. Um, I was listening to the George Jones station on Spotify the other day, and I don't know if it's his song or if he covered it, but the, the song uh, Me and Jesus came on. Me and Jesus got a good thing going. Me and Jesus got it all worked out. And, like, that's how we approach theology. It's like, it's me and Jesus. We don't need anyone else. Um, but, but we do. I mean, tradition is what happens when you're, when you're walking in the woods and grandma says, that mushroom's okay to eat, that one's not. It's, it's not only arrogant, it's stupid to say, hang on, grandma. It's me and my Boy Scout field guide here. I know what I'm doing. I don't need tradition because that lands you in the ER. Um, so the, the, the tradition of the church historical influence, it, you know, it keeps us from eating bad mushrooms and ending up in the ER. And then finally, theology is doxological. It means it, it's worship. Um, you know, we study God to know God and to worship him. I said this last week. I'm going to say it again next week because I think this is one of the easiest things for us to forget, right? Um, I that that terrible book, uh, Lord of the Rings, that quote last week. I made so many people angry by saying I don't love Lord of the Rings. Sorry, your hearts. Um, but, you know, we're, we're not fluent in the language of awe and wonder and delight. And so a lot of us just, it's hard for us to come to studying theology in a worshipful manner. Um, and so uh, this is Matthew Barrett. He's a professor in uh, Kansas City. He says, we do a disservice to systematic theology, to Christians, to the church, and to God if we teach theology like a problem to be solved rather than an act of worship, right? We're just not trying to solve the problem of is God three and one at the same time. We're trying to worship a triune God who is both three and one at the same time. So let me end. Two, you know, ivory tower stodgy theologians, again, all my friends are dead, but who you would see their names and you're like, no. Like, they're, like here's Herman Bovink. Like, look at that scowl. He's, he's Dutch. Like, the Dutch aren't known for their, you know, joyful celebrations. He writes this. Uh, uh, 1800s for about, uh, late 18, early 1900s. The aim of theology, after all, can be no other than the rational creature, know God, and knowing him, glorify God. It's his good pleasure to be known by human beings. The object of God's self-revelation, accordingly, is to introduce his knowledge into the human consciousness and through it, again, to set the stage for the glorification of God himself. God makes himself known to us so that we may worship him. And by doing so, he sets the stage up of theology, of biblical studies, so that we can get on the stage and, 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 and see his glory play out across the ages. 
Oh, oh, I have his dates right here. Goodness gracious. Um, you know, theology is for worship. Here's John Calvin. He's French, right? If, if the Dutch, you know, if you like the Dutch, I like the Dutch. Dutch are great. Never been to Holland. I've heard it's nice. Um, tried to go to the Tulip Festival one time and realized you have to book a hotel like six years in advance, so <laughs> that didn't work. Yeah, yeah, I guess. But that's not the Tulip Festival. Yeah, you can go then. Yeah. Uh, so uh, this is John Calvin from uh, Geneva, French uh, reformer, 1509-1564. Uh, he says this: the effect of our knowledge ought to be first to teach us reverence and fear, and then second to induce us under its guidance and teaching to ask every good thing from him and when it is received, ascribe it to him. So John Calvin says, hey, here's why we study theology. First, so we would fear God and we would worship him. Second, so we would see that he's good and kind and generous and so that we would pray, that we would ask God for every good thing from him. And then third, we study theology so that when we receive answers to prayer, we praise God for it. We ascribe the giving to God, right? That's, I mean, I have my, he, he's written everything, John Calvin has. I have his entire set of commentaries on the whole Bible, not Revelation, didn't get that far. Um, his systematic theology is right. One of the most brilliant minds in, in history says, here's why you do theology. Because you want to worship God, you want to pray to God, and you want to praise God. Love that. And so theology then is biblical, it's logical, it's Christological, it's helpful, historical, and it's doxological. Uh, I got four minutes for questions if we have them, because I just ran on top of you and dumped it all out. Comatized you. That's not even a word, but take it. All right. So next week we'll do uh, we'll deal with a couple of objections. Hey, but theology isn't this, is it? Right? Theology's not the Bible. I'm not convinced yet. We should be spending our time here, right? Theology's not practical. Theology's not a. Tr it's not evangelistic. It's not a tr like you don't build a church by doing theology. Nobody's interested in that. It's not worshipful. So I'm gonna hit that again. And, like, theology is a good thing, but maybe it's not necessary. It's good, but optional. We have other stuff to do. We'll, uh, we'll deal with those objections next week. Um, but let me go ahead and pray, and then we'll, you know, pleasantly surprise the kids' workers. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have shown yourself to us, that you have given us your word that we may know you, and so that we may... Well, what John Calvin said, that we may worship and fear you, that we may pray and ask of you, and so that we may praise you for answering those things that we ask for. So, Lord, I pray that um, as we continue to think about theology and think about your word, that, um, that we would do just that, that we would worship and pray and praise you. Lord, help us to do this. We pray um, that in this upcoming worship service that you would make yourself known to us so that we may glorify you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.